This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Think About It podcast. I'm really excited today to speak to uh, Professor Malena Doubt, who is at the University of Virginia. And first of all, Malena, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me here. Yes, so I just want to introduce you briefly to our listeners and give them a sense of what, what got me interested in your work, which is just incredible. I really love your book, Tropics of Haiti, and I'll say something about that. Um, and you're also quite active on Twitter under at Fictions of Haiti, which people should follow. It's a, like a little learning platform for, <laughs> for the history of, of Haiti and the revolution. <laughs> And you're a professor of African diaspora studies and of American studies at the University of Virginia. And the author of, uh, the recipient of many grants, National Humanities Center, Ford Foundation, National Endowment for the Humanities. The author of two books, first, uh, Baron de Vaste and the Origins of Black Atlantic Humanism. The second book, which really got me sort of interested in your work which is called Tropics of Haiti, Race and the Literary History of the Haitian Revolution in the Atlantic World, 1789 to 1865. And then you're also editing now uh, a major anthology of all the fictional accounts of the Haitian Revolution, right? Yes. And in fact, that will be out uh, in November with the University of Virginia Press. Oh, fantastic. Great. So, so and I, I just... I got really interested, as you know, in your work because I edited this anthology of first texts in the, the U.S. canon. And one of those texts, which we'll get to, is a short story published in 1828, presumably the first story published by an African-American writer, surely not the first written, there were probably many other ones, called Teresa, a Haitian tale about a young girl, and we'll talk about her, this heroine who changes the course of history by intervening in the Haitian Revolution. It's an incredible, to me, an incredibly gripping story that we don't quite expect out of the 19th century, right? Right. And before we get to this story, I just wanted to ask you if you could lay out for our listeners, your project in this book, Tropics of Haiti, was to revise our understanding of the Haitian Revolution as either forgotten, not acknowledged, mm -hmm or following a certain kind of path. So if you just sort of got us, it's just fascinating how you sort of reconceptualize my whole understanding of the Haitian Revolution. Oh, well, thank you so much for that really kind introduction. Um, I hope I can live up to it. Um, but uh, so in Tropics of Haiti, I mean, it's interesting because I had initially thought I would work in that book on specifically fictional um, writings about the Haitian Revolution and that 
I, I sort of thought I knew all of them for the most part. And, you know, they were people like Heinrich von Kleist, a German author, and Victor Hugo and Alphonse de Lamartine on the French side. And then I knew that there were Haitian authors like Émeric Bergeau or Pierre Faubert with plays and novels. Um, and then, you know, a handful of short stories, as you mentioned, Teresa, a Haitian tale or Victor Sejour's Le Moulatre, The Mulatto. And so I thought I had a kind of relatively confined landscape of, of works to be kind of con, uh, consulting. Um, and the more I sort of got into both the historiography, which I needed to go back to so that I could understand the different moments that were being portrayed in these various works. Um, and as I was doing that, finding sort of more and more of these novels and poems, and, and I was just kind of like, whoa, my, my conception and understanding of the Haitian Revolution as an event silenced in world history was starting to change because I realized that First, it wasn't silenced in its era in the way that we sort of commonly think about silencing, that it was a kind of deliberate framing on a collective framing on a transnational scale of this event as not um, an event that was driven by enslaved people and their desires for freedom, but that it was sort of an accident of history that followed upon the French Revolution, like the French Revolution taken too far or something. And then um, as if the French Revolution needs, you know, the Haitian Revolution to have a have a criticism of it. Um, and, and then on the other side that there was all of this kind of racism that crept into the narrative, which made it impossible to see the enslaved as actors, people who had their own volition and wants and desires. And that didn't start at the French Revolution, that they didn't need to know that. And one thing that um, or to know of the French Revolution, I should say. And one thing that really shines through in reading fictional writings of the revolution is how often the slave revolt and rebellion comes up outside of the context of the Haitian Revolution specifically and or any relationship to enlightenment thought or French revolutionary thought that the literary imagination was perfectly capable of imagining, understanding and was perfectly aware of, I'm thinking of someone like Afra Benz or Onoko from the 17th century, that slave revolts and rebellions were possible and likely. And so alongside that, when I got into the historiography, I saw that a lot of the fictional works had influenced the historiography and vice versa. And that's when I decided I can't separate these, these genres as neatly as I would want to because they're using a lot of the same sources and framing their writing in the same way. To go back to this, to initially, and I, to be honest, would have subscribed to this idea that the Haitian revolution was either silenced, suppressed, it's not taught. I give you the one example that you know is Hannah Arendt's little book on revolution, quite an important, very beautiful sort of philosophical book. She doesn't even reference Haiti. Um, and I thought, okay, so it's been silenced and we could assume from today's perspective, we know why, because it threatened sort of the entire United States kind of makeup, but you found something else. It wasn't silenced, as you said, it shows up in, by what you said, Victor Hugo, Heinrich von Kleist, these major authors, which are canonical and, Yet another confession, I didn't know they wrote about the Haitian Revolution, right? So two oversights that you kind of unpack and say, it's a little too easy for us to subscribe to this idea, oh, this has been repressed and silenced and now we got to go back to the archives. You said there is all this evidence. Yes, and I think that there's a line in, so we get this sort of idea of silencing uh, the Haitian Revolution, of course, from Michel Wolf Trouillot's famous book, Silencing the Past. And the, the one important thing about that book is it's not a book about the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution is kind of one scenario and episode in that book. But one really important line that does concern it is that 
is the line about how those who wrote about it in the voluminous pamphlets, so Tuyo acknowledges that there was a lot of writing on the revolution in its own day, that they could filter the events only through their own perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we see in this voluminous pages of thousands and thousands of pages of writing. And also another line that's really important, I think, for understanding his argument versus the way that some people sort of write about his argument. He says, you know, an event is silence like one silence is a gun. So the Haitian Revolution made an enormous sound like a gunshot. But it is true that later historians and writers basically put a silencer on it. And they did that, some of them willfully, they'd want to talk about it, but there's also tombs of volumes about Napoleon that mention Haiti or Saint-Domingue not even one time. This most formative event in this person's life is not mentioned, his biggest loss, his biggest humiliation is not mentioned in so many of the biographies about him. And, and at that point, it doesn't even matter if it's willful or if it's just ignorance, um, it, it, because the effect is the same. The Haitian Revolution is not taught usually in French schools, starting to change a little bit. Um, even on the US side, my students still tell me, never heard of it when we're in class, never the first time, or they heard it in passing, they weren't quite sure what it was. So we still have more work to do. Right, when you, you actually just said, so Napoleon, so give me a sense. So how does it figure in his life? Because he's kind of a lens through which to see all of French self-understanding and history. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because, you know, we just had the bicentennial of Napoleon right. commemorating his death on May 5th, 1821. So 200 years. And um, it was sort of like pulling teeth to get the French to acknowledge that we have to talk about this restitution of slavery. Because when so Napoleon came to power in France in 1799 by overthrowing the directory government that had replaced the revolutionary government. And um he very quickly gets to work on this plan to restore slavery to the colonies, but he's at war with England. So he's got to wait for this to be resolved. And once the Treaty of Amiens happens in March of 1802, this really opens the door. One, he wants to get rid of Toussaint Louverture. He'd already sent a big expedition in January of 1802 to do that. And then um, following the Treaty of Amiens, he's going to send another expedition to Guadeloupe to reinstate slavery there. Um, in that treaty, France had recaptured Martinique, which had been in British hands. So slavery had never been abolished there because the French National Convention had abolished it in 1794, but Martinique was a part of Great Britain technically at that moment. So now you have an overturning of French revolutionary principles on the part of Napoleon, except that you're st it's still a republic. So now we have, instead of an emancipatory republic, which is its claim to fame, we have a slaving republic. And that slaving republic will last until 1848. I mean, the Bourbons are going to come back to power. So France is going to get increasingly incoherent. Um, but so Napoleon's legacy as this great and huge hero um, is, is partially destroying the republic that is today, the, that modern France is today a republic that is still linked to that primary instantiation. And yet there's this silencing around th this fact and this part of the history. And what you're describing sounds with all the differences and all the particularities, there's a kind of analogous debate in America, sort of that America establishes itself as the kind of beacon of hope of liberty and freedom and emancipation, except we keep slavery. Absolutely. So France, you're saying, wages a revolution in the name of liberty and freedom. And then what I found so fascinating in your book, you say these literary texts introduce this other story. This, so can you say a little bit about like, the story, like maybe the Victor Sejour short story, which he, he's, 
you could say something about him, but sort of this story of the so-called mixed race individuals and what's at stake there, which is, which for me was really a way of, this is how they thought the revolution is not really a revolution. Mm -hmm. So they, the, the, many of the writers, I mean, and what is interesting is that um, across the spectrum, because there are a lot of German writers and yet they adopted the same narrative. So something I found was that this, what I call the mulatto vengeance narrative, the idea that it was treacherous people of mixed race or hybrids of some sort. So even though Toussaint Virture was only sometimes understood to be a person of mixed race, um, was much more often understood to be the son of African kings and queens, etc. cetera. Um, they still wrote about him in this kind of hybrid way. Like he was, he became free, he adopted French principles, he could read. And so anybody who was kind of inscrutable and unable to anyone to figure out to a certain extent, they wrote about within this language of racial hybridity. Like you don't know, are they really for the whites or are they really for the blacks? And they're the ones who are more likely um, to, to betray you. And I found that it really just kind of covered up anxieties. It covered up anxieties about slavery, which was the big sort of elephant in the room, but also about what are you going to do when you have a society that is sort of mixed together now? Yeah. Because the, especially on the French side, the Code Noir allowed for white men to free enslaved African women, marry the, convert them to Catholicism and then marry them. And so in the very late 17th century and early 18th century, you saw a lot of that in Saint-Domingue, which is how you get the numbers to be almost equal. So the, there's about 30,000 uh, white colonists, and there's also about 30,000, if not more, some estimates say 40,000 free people of color. How this happens is that in the earliest days of the colony, you had very different policies, which is not to say that anything was more egalitarian. It was, it was about populating the colony and getting people to want to go there because white women, it was seen as not a, a good environment for white women. Um, it was too tropical and too hot. And they had all these ideas about like sexuality and what would happen to people there. And so this led to Saint-Domingue being called the libertine colony because people definitely back home in France were scandalized by the idea that you had all these white men marrying black women, taking up with African women, creating all these children. And then the, it just kind of perpetuated. And so a lot of the racial tax the reason why many of them were the earliest were developed in the French Caribbean was precisely because you had all this quote unquote racial mixing. Um, Doris Garraway has a great book called The Libertine Colony in which she also talks about Martinique and Guadeloupe and all these French priests who went to these islands and just started like categorizing everything and all the different kinds of people because you were seeing a phenomena that you hadn't seen necessarily on the other islands to the same extent because it didn't involve enslaved women and white men solely, although that also did happen, um, that it, you had this sort of co completely different sector of society raise up um, in, in which before the children are even born, the women are being freed and creating just a very different kind of state, Creole state, if you will. And if you give us um, like a capsule mini history of what does Toussaint Louverture, the, the Black Spartacus, want? And I remember this line from your book where he says, I want to die free and French. And I sort of say, what does he want? What happens? And then why doesn't the story become the great story of a successful revolution in our hemisphere? I mean, and this is, again, when we think about that concept of silencing, Toussaint Louverture is a person who was silenced. So he writes this constitution in 1801, which he does, you know, this is Napoleon's reason for sending his expedition to get rid of Toussaint Louverture. But Toussaint Louverture only does this because in 1799, to prepare the way to reinstate slavery, Napoleon changes the French Republican constitution to say that there can be a different set of laws in the colony 
than in France. And this is against French Republican ideology because think about universalism, une indivisible, like you're not supposed to have different sets of laws for different groups of people. Mm -hmm. And so he writes this constitution. He says, you know, okay, if we're going to have different laws, I'm going to write them. And he makes it explicit in article three that slavery can never exist. So think about in the US constitution, how it doesn't say slaves, it says three fifths of all other persons. Well, the French had had this same problem. They would say citizens, and then they would be like, oh, we said all citizens to not have to really address the question, particularly of free people of color. Yeah. Um, and so in Toussaint's constitution, it's no slavery can exist here. No servitude can exist here. It's abolished forever. Like there's all these different and specific clauses that spell out that slavery is over forever. But another clause also does say everyone here is equal and will die free in French. And this is because in his mind, the French Republic is associated with liberty because they're the ones that abolished slavery formally. And independence at that moment was only wished for by the white French colonists who, because they wanted to get away from France so that they could bring back slavery. Wow. So in his mind, republicanism is associated with liberty. And that's why he says free in French. Now, of course, once Napoleon comes to power, the rest of the revolutionaries after the arrest, the infamous arrest of Toussaint Louverture in June 1802, he's deported to France. He dies a horrible death of starvation and neglect in the Fort du Joux in the Jura Mountains in April of 1803. It's just terrible. And, you know, when the revolutionaries find out about this, the arrest of Louverture was already enough. But when they find out about this, they now they have to understand that French republicanism isn't going to save them, that France is really no longer a republic under Louverture and or under Napoleon rather. And so they adopt the independent ideology and change the slogan of the revolution from liberty or death, which had also been used during the French and American revolutions to independence or death. And so this is their sort of particular twist on it. And we know for sure that by May of 1803, under the leadership of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the founder of independent Haiti and its first head of state, um, that, that the revolutionaries are now calling for independence. They don't trust France anymore. They, they know that Napoleon has already uh, sent an expedition to Guadeloupe and reinstated slavery to a certain extent or re-allowed it in the French Republic with Martinique. And they no longer, this is no longer a part of their plan to remain French. Just correct me, but, or just tell me if I get this right. So Toussaint Louverture believes within the framework of the new France, we can actually be free and equal citizens as people of color, black people, mixed race people, all of this. And instead Napoleon really betrays the principles of what we today consider modern France. And there's now in the colonies, they're gonna have different rules and we're gonna have slavery. So it becomes a revolution from kind of a, revision of the framework that exists, working within the sort of within the master's tools kind of logic, we can fix this to, we got to become a separate country because these people will not actually live up to their own ideals. Yes. And compounding that is, so you have that, which is a sort of legal um, and sort of how you organize a society, uh, the way of organizing society, right? The right. political organization that is now suspect. But then adding to that is, during the Leclerc expedition, um, General Leclerc, who is Napoleon's brother-in-law, he uses genocidal tactics. He tells Napoleon directly in a letter of, in October of 1802, we got to get rid of everyone over the age of 12, anyone who's ever worn an epaulette, and basically like half of all the people of color, right? And the thing is, when you look at people's letters from the era, they just agree, like women writing to their daughters, they're just like, oh, you know, if we don't get rid of every last one of them, 
then you know we can't save the colony. And the number of times that French colonists will just write, yeah, we can just go to Africa and capture more and bring more. And so the tactics of, and the, these, this couldn't be hidden. First of all, Haiti is not that big. It's about the size of Massachusetts, right? Um, and so they start drowning. First, they use this tactic of drowning, which they called the, the noyade, because during the terror in France, a man named Jean-Baptiste Carrier had used what's called the noyade de Nantes, to um, kill his adversaries. So they use this tactic of the noyade, which is where you do mass drownings on ships, but then the bodies kind of just like float back to shore, right? Um, and so you have all these eyewitnesses on the US, US merchants saying, this is horrific. You have French soldiers writing in their journals, writing letters back home saying, I'm disgusted at humanity. The smell is atrocious. And um, perhaps to sort of maybe in an attempt to hide what, what they were doing, um, the French start to use another tactic, which is a novel tactic that no one had ever used before in the air, which is gassing. So they would allow the sulfur gas burning from the coals on the ships to fill the hold. And because it's a hold that opens up, which is how they were doing the drownings, they suffocated them first um, and then they opened it up. And it's just, then Rochambeau, so I mean, it's like, could things get worse? Yeah, they get worse because um, Leclerc is going to die in November of 1802 after this famous sacking of the city of Cap Francais, which is now Cap Haitien. And his second in command, General Rochambeau, whose father had fought in the American Revolutionary Wars, the American War of Independence, decides to use um, dogs from Cuba to hunt down the revolutionaries. And so there are these letters where he says, you know, oh, they're asking me, you know, how we're going to feed all these dogs because the French army is starving anyway, because the revolutionaries are so good at destroying their their stores and blockading the ports so they can't get their goods. And how are we going to feed these dogs? And he says, just give them blacks to eat. Wow. And there are these very famous engravings in Marcus Rainsford, a British author's history, one of the first full length histories in English of the revolution, published in 1805, that show you know, the, the French military training these dogs uh, on human flesh, to eat human flesh. Um, and so this is another reason why the revolutionaries have no desire to be French. They want nothing to do with them. As soon as they declare independence, um, a man named Louis-Félix Boisantonnerre, one of independent Haiti's first historians says, anathema to the name of the French. Like they don't wanna even think about them anymore. And he says something really resonant in his memoir uh, that is Boisantonnerre. He says, I remember like, and I lament the loss of my family members. I can hear their cries. And it's so visceral the way that he describes it. It's, it, it's, no lo it's not an abstraction. It's we're the people who survived this and lived through this. And if we hate the French, basically you're going to have to forgive us because of everything that we suffered. Wow, so this is, a, there could be a reason why the French maybe don't want to study this so much in high schools and in their own history. And they sort of say, this is a separate thing. These people broke off, outrageously declare independence. And you said in the literary text, it's a story always of sort of children turning against their fathers, these mixed race sons, mostly in this edible kind of drama will slay their white fathers because as you said, they're just they're just a walking conflict. People can't make sense of them. And I think that, I mean, what you said is just, is really poignant because yes, the Haitians, you know, broke off, but actually Haitians at that time and French, they were the same. They are the same 
they, they became the same people and they had been since 1697 at the Treaty of Ryswick. So that's why I think that there was so much anxiety, especially in French literature on the revolution in the 1820s and 1830s, which is when you see the bulk of it, um, especially so there was an indemnity, an infamous indemnity that France forced Haiti to pay in 1825, 150 million francs. They was the sort of quote unquote agreed upon amount um, to, uh, as the price of recognition. And you see after this, a crop of literary works fictional works, plays, and a lot of poetry about the Haitian revolution. And you still ha you have this narrative of fathers turning against sons, mothers against daughters, people being kind of milk brothers and not knowing, you know, if that creates this tie between them or having a parent in common and not knowing and then suddenly discovering that after they've killed their own brother. So much of this. And I think it is partially because the French Revolution itself also had pitted neighbor against neighbor. People yeah. were turning on one another, informing one another. And the Haitian Revolution seemed like a clear cut case, blacks against whites, except it wasn't because there was so much mixing of society and traveling back and forth. And so I think today, even when the French do commemorations for slavery and today ha happens to be May 10th, um, which is the 20th year anniversary of the Loi Toubira in France, um, commemorating or rather recognizing slavery as a crime against humanity it happens to be today. But all the conversation is about Martinique and Guadeloupe. And I think because still today, the French don't know what to do with the example of Saint-Domingue, because Haiti is a place they can paint as over there. But all of the names of people in Haiti to the vast majority of their names, their surnames are French. Right. So they still speak French in Haiti for ill or for good. Um, street names are still written in French. Some of the cities still have the same French names. And so I think that th that anxiety was translated, just like today, anxieties are translated on the screen all right. the time in music. The anxieties were translated in the literary culture. And tell me something about this figure of this the mixed race individual. So Victor Sejour, who's... Mm -hmm from New Orleans, but is sent to France ultimately because his parents recognize his talent. And as a mixed race person, I think his father is a free man of color from uh -huh. Haiti, escapes the revolution. He's sent to Paris and becomes a major playwright, incredibly famous, super popular. And you think one of those stories that I wasn't aware that they were black writers in France in the 19th century, maybe besides Dumas. So an amazing, so he writes a story called the mulatto. And I would be curious, even if you say, what words can we use even without quoting that title right now for an individual like that who embodies this, this tension or this anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I, this is the thing too, is that we want to recognize a person's identity because it is not wrong to recognize difference, right? except that the vocabulary that we have yeah. is all derived from pseudoscience. So what do we call such a person? So we're like, you know, uh, we say quote unquote, a person of mixed race or in France, they're more likely to say now Métis. But of course, Métis and Métissage are also words that grew up as part of the same system of trying right. to racially classify people. Um, and I think that it, that it's sort of what we really need is a way to think about people as in terms of more of their individuality an individuality that is able to recognize difference in terms of like, if we're describing someone that we're going to go meet, many of us are uncomfortable to describe the way that somebody looks. And so we fall back on these racial categories, which is very interesting because if you say, so, you know, I'm going to meet this person and she is black, like she, that could be a whole range of colors. Or if, again, saying that someone's white, depending on where they are, are they Southern European, are they Greek, are they, or, you know, what, that, I, that it actually doesn't really, the thing we want it to do, it actually doesn't really do 
and and I think that be, it, part of it is we are still actually uncomfortable in yeah. not rec in recognizing that the things we call race are not real, and so. To me, that's how it gets kind of caught up and confused, even in French society where there's even more reticence, where it's very unnatural to refer to people by skin color, except then that you see that people do find other words. They will fall back on religion then. They'll uh -huh. fall back on a country of origin. And so you get people described as North African who have been in France for generations. They're not North African anymore, right? And then there's all these other Maghreb, that other words come up to replace the things that make us uncomfortable and that give us anxiety. And so, but in the 19th century, there was very little anxiety about the term mulatto other than on the part of Haitian writers who from a very early um, point, for example, Baron de Vatay in 1840, in 1814 rather, excuse me, um, said, you know, Negro and mulatto are injurious epithets that you use to divide us. So this so is 1814. Knew. I think this is really important for our listeners. In 1814, someone says these words are used always against us. These are injurious epithets. That's exactly epithets. And I think that's really important, even for these discussions that you know as well as I do from Twitter, et cetera, about the words and can't, and can't use these words anymore. Like I remember William Wells Brown, who you actually reference also, who has this kind of amazing speech on, on the Haitian Revolution, and he writes the first known play, and he says. You know, he says about what the word Negro means, what the N-word means in the 1850s. So we don't need four minutes ago, some student being a little bit outraged to say it's uh, 200 years of history that you are showing in this book. And so the story, the first story that I was just interested in, the Victor Seixua story, which was is now included in many anthologies. It's originally published in French, I believe, yes. and translated into English. And it is the drama of this man who discovers who his real father is, who's also his owner and his, and then the father wants to rape his wife. And it's super difficult and melodramatic. I always find the melodrama really important because it goes to real human experience. Yeah. Like, can you say something about the story? Because it's sort of, a, it's kind of an, an a heartbreaking story. <laughs> it is a heartbreaking story and I, I always think back to 1837 when it appears in yeah. France, right. <laughs> published in Paris in the Revue des Colonies. Right. And what is a French reader like thinking about when they're reading this story, which, as yeah. you mentioned, involves not just an attempted rape on Georges, um, his wife, but his mother is acknowledged to have been raped by his father, his white father, who, as you mentioned, is also his owner. And then the denouement, sorry for those who haven't read it, he, you know, kills his father out of revenge for having had his wife killed because she wouldn't sleep with him because she refuses to quote unquote give in to him, let her allow herself to be raped, right? Um, so he has her executed um, and they, they have the child together that Georges runs away to the mountains with, but he vows he wants to get revenge. And so he kills Alfred is the name of the planter. And right at the moment that Alfred is dying, that his head is coming off, he chops his head off, um, he has the time to say, I'm your father, like this, you know? And so this recognition, because Georges had always wanted to know, well, who was his father and his mother would never tell him. And so um, he finds this out and then he commits suicide too. And so it's sort of like this, to me, even perhaps unwitting this commentary on well, what did slavery do? It separated the mother from the child, the it alienated families, and yeah. it created a generational alienation. And so Georges' son 
is now going to grow up without either of his two parents, alienated from his life story. He's just a little child. Who knows who's going to tell him what, how he's going to be. And to me, that to me is what the legacy of, you know, I was reading one of the op-eds about um, the commemoration of slavery in France. And uh, they'd interviewed this woman and she said she had tried to do her family genealogy and she got to the moment of 1848 and she couldn't go any further because that was when her family entered the record as they were granted their freedom when France finally out abolished slavery. And so all of that before, as human beings, we have this distinctive desire to kind of know where we came from and know who we are. And so many people who say, oh, you know, I can trace my ancestry all the way back to, you know, whatever, the Celts or something. And for so many people of color and people of African descent, this isn't possible because, because of slavery and because of the slave trade. And so it's remarkable to me that just as you said, we don't need someone now to tell us not to use the N word or not to use mulatto or not, because we had people in the era telling us not to use them, right? But we also, it's not new, people's understanding of slavery alienating um, human beings from themselves and from their own histories and their subjectivity is not new either. It's recognized and we see it in, in Sejo's short story. Tell me something about what you just said that this is kind of terrible fact that a lot of sort of, you know, black people today cannot trace their genealogy. I mean, there's lots of advances to, you know, Henry Louis Gates projects, these kinds of, you know, DNA projects, et cetera. But let's say, there's a kind of endpoint, and that endpoint coincides with a legal or archival moment when some someone is entered into the archive. But what you're showing, this is a literary history, is these things were totally at play and formed public conversation. So everybody was aware that there are families and people belong to all sorts of groupings. There's all sorts of categories. So I'm kind of interested in how you make sense of literature in relation to this historical record, which just will not acknowledge by default many of these people. Because I think for a long time, I mean, I think that this is changing to a certain extent um, that, you know, historians, especially with this like huge archival term that we're seeing, rely on archival records. And even when they acknowledge that the record is incomplete or that it has a certain point of view, which I think has been around for a long time, that historiography has sort of said, we know that we're not like writing up here, like the voice of God and like telling the truth. We're telling a perspective based on a limited set of, of, of point of views and, and, and circumstances that we can kind of unfold. But literature, that is to me the beautiful thing about literature through the ages, goes where historians can't go because the literary and fictional imagination, first of all, many of these people lived in the era. So a lot of the stories, which is a literary pretense, but a lot of fictions of the Haitian Revolution start out like Robinson Crusoe. Everything here is true. This is, these are true historical events or, or Edgar Allan Poe's the, um, narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. Um, but so many of them actually are like Claire de Duras's Ulrika from 1823 is based on the real life of a Senegalese girl, a black girl from Senegal who was brought to France and raised in France. And so many, and that's what we find in the Haitian Revolution. They are based on something. They have the characters, they have the names there. Some, so many of the authors in the anthology, for example, we were able to then trace like, oh, they had a parent who lived in Saint-Domingue. Oh, I see. Oh, they had a cousin. They had a, like, they had some family tie and Victor Hugo as well. René de Chateaubriand who wrote about Saint-Domingue and Lugénie du Christianisme as well. His father was a slave trafficker. Um, so, so because those histories were so intertwined, we find that there's, it is not 
I, it, I, and I never make any sort of empirical claim for any of these, but I also think that reading these fictional works should give us pause about what we consider to be the historical writings that come from the era, because they are also based on um, a point of view and also a romanticization of that person's own perspective. So a lot of the white colonists who left kind of these journals, um, one's name is Jean-Baptiste Pillet. Um, it's uh, in English, most famously it was um, reproduced and translated um, by the Parhams as My Odyssey, it's a text from New Orleans. But so it's Mon Odyssey, it was originally written in French in probably the 1790s. It's interspersed with all this um, like <laughs> Ulysses sort of narrative and of like himself and, and really asks you to have sympathy for planters like him who lost everything. And I always tell my students, it's very seductive because you might say, well, he was just a child and he did lose everything. It's very, you have to resist so much of it. And yet it should enter into as a piece of history. This is a person who was there. This is a person who took their experiences. What they were, what you remember as a child of, a, of an event is also very different. And so I use it in that sense to say, look at the kind of nostalgia that a person who also didn't have, a, who had a certain um, level of experiences and remembers them a certain way or was also told them a certain way and now believes they remember it a certain way. And so we get into all these things about point of view. And that's what I think is the beauty of teaching fiction alongside like personal testimonies of the era as well is because you can really see the, the magic that point of view does and the damage that point of view does, but all of the different nuances that are, that we must attend to when we recognize this. Well, and you said earlier right now that these literary representations shape how historians actually approach the event. They may then say, well, I'm gonna do all this amazing research and then change my own point of view, but they're coming with a mindset. And when you just said there's a narrative of a planter who feels lost, that that enters into the public consciousness that, well, they also lost something. So whether that's justified or not justified or morally right or morally wrong, it starts to shape a narrative. So I think, What's interesting, what you're doing with literary liter literary texts, and I sometimes laugh because I I have colleagues and I've had colleagues who kind of really surprised me because someone said to me recently, I never read literature, and I sort of thought, well, but you write narrative, mm -hmm. but they don't write narrative; they write historiography. So it's sort of this distinction. You're saying this distinction is a little bit a risk to maintain because historians have a will rely on frameworks that are culturally transmitted. And they don't come out of historians' works only. Yeah. Like yeah, the, the, whole, the whole figure, that figure of the mixed race person, what mm -hmm. Victor Sejour calls him mulatto, that figure doesn't really enter as really well into census reports and data because it's exactly figure sitting on all these margins and peripheries. So literature gives presence to this. And you're saying at the same time, the whole history of the revolution has been shaped by that story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it's fascinating to me because I sort of, what happened was, and when I talk about sort of like re resisting the narrative, because you know that like, what's most important is like, yes, the planter can feel sorry and sad, but that's not what is most important to me, right? Because I'm not writing about planter nostalgia or planter feel. And if I were, then I would, I would pay more attention to that, right? But is that even as the historians saw that in all these narratives, these letters, people were blaming the free people of color because they knew that it wasn't true, 
based on other information that we have now that enslaved people had their entirely other organization and other stuff going on that did not was not distinctly related to what was going on with the free people of color, such that there are multiple revolutions kind of happening at the same time. And so it's not that any of those narratives are wrong. They are each equally true to a different degree. But the but the fact is that one took precedence over the other. So the free people of color asking for their rights, which was based on the Declaration of the Rights of Man, took precedence in many narratives over the enslaved people, their organization, and what they were doing over here. But so because the historians knew that, it was almost as if it didn't matter what people in the era thought. And so what I was interested in was, yes, we know what we know, but people in the era, because they wanted to make other people believe also that it was the free people of color so that they could further subjugate the slaves. Like, oh, if we give these people their rights, see, then the enslaved are going to ask for their rights too. Um, they propped up this narrative. They deliberately, some of them, um, circulated this narrative. It was for their own protection because they did not want the free people of color to be on equal footing. And so to me, it absolutely historically matters what people thought because, and I living in the United States, I think back to the whole concept of weapons of mass destruction. It absolutely matters what people believed because they yeah. kept telling us weapons of mass. And many of us said, hmm, you know, and people a lot, we didn't wait for evidence, right? But the United States went to war based on an idea. And so right. we have to pay attention to beliefs, I think, as well. If we go to this, um, this story by this anonymous author, Teresa, which is quite interesting and features really sort of in a particular way in your book. So the book again for our readers is called Tropics of Haiti. It's a whole, uh, it's Tropics of Haiti. It's a whole study of the literary history and representation of the Haitian revolution. In this story, you can say something about this from 18, 1828 there's a woman who changes the course of history. And you actually make quite a bit of that and say, this is something for us to think about. You don't say it conclusively tells us this or that, but and you just tell our readers, and it's just a, re a remarkable find which um, Francis Smith Foster discovered this story probably by also going through the existing records of an African-American newspaper that people had not bothered to look at, it seems, right? So she discovered the story only, I think, about 20 years ago or so, right? So this, so can you say that this is such a remarkable short story? And I always, I, I can tell you this, I send it to Casey Lemons, a director of Harriet, and I said, can you make a movie? <laughs> I just send it to her. <laughs> and she was like, uh, Willie, I have a couple of projects on my plate. Said, this has to be a movie. <laughs> I think it's actually a great idea. I mean, so right? <laughs> so um, Teresa Haitian Tale was a serialized story that appeared in January and February of 1828 in Freedom's Journal, which is the first African-American newspaper. Um, and so um, this story is remarkable because it's not the only writing about Haiti that appears in that journal. And the journal's editors had these very distinctive ties to Haiti and very concrete ties to Haiti. So on the one hand, we see that there's a, here's a story with a female heroine for the Haitian revolution, who, as you mentioned, changes the course of history. Um, and, and then on the other hand, we see how much interest there was in U.S. African-American communities at a very early date. And so to me, I always say this is like before Harlem because there's this narrative that the kind of transnational and black diaspora and pan-Africanism um, is, is a 20th century phenomenon um, or a late 19th century phenomenon, but it's, it is also a really 
it's a it's a phenomenon that is born in with Haitian independence. Um, there's a scholar named Leslie Alexander, and she's found this sort of first African American response in 1804 to the independence of Haiti, written about and justification for Haitian independence in in the press, in the U.S. press. Um, and so this this tale to me is remarkable, also for the way that it actually there are historical narratives that talk about the role of women and female revolutionaries. And that one moment among many in which the literary imagination and the historical record actually converge together. So no, we don't have a this actual figure, Teresa, but because there were so many circulated biographies and narratives of the other Haitian revolutionary figures that had women heroes in them, it was a ripe thing for the literary imagination. And I'll just give you one example. Jean-Jacques Dessalines' wife, Marie-Claire Heureuse, um, which has this name, Heureuse meaning happy in, in French, um, was known for saving people during the revolution. And so one of the really popular literary texts is the history of the, written in French, history of the Saint-Jean-Dier sisters um, from right. 18... 12, I believe. And it's about supposedly the two last white women saved in Saint-Domingue and Dessalines' wife um, has something to do with this. Um, and so she got written about in these heroic terms at a time when um, the world had si was criticizing Dessalines a lot. So as we got further and further from the revolution, there were certainly criticisms of him in his own era. And he was assassinated in 1806, I should say, uh, by members of his own military in independent Haiti. But as we got further and further away and then after the assassination, which seemed to be a rebuke on the part of the Haitian people themselves, right, to the international world, um, he got he then became the scapegoat. And then the recovery of Toussaint Louverture happened. And so a lot of times women perhaps inspired by all the tales of his wife doing this, which was first written about by um, a, a French traveler named Descourtils, who claimed that Dessalines' wife hid him under their bed in order to save his life. It's just the, the claims, it's kind of wild and almost unbelievable. Um, but, but so then you got a lot of this. Well, what was the role of women? And there were a lot of women revolutionaries. Some of them are fighting in combat. And we know that women like Sanité Belair, the wife of Charles Belair, a Haitian revolutionary general fought. Marie-Jeanne Lamartinière, she also fought. They dressed in men's clothing. So um, to me, I just wanted to look at well, what about if we actually considered what people thought was revolutionary in the era and then what we might recognize also as revolutionary now, passing along of information, that it wouldn't just have to be hand-to-hand -hand combat, that there's other ways to enact a kind of revolutionary consciousness that might also include saving people that you think are innocent. Right, right, right. And so in, in this story, so Teresa is the daughter of this woman, Pauline, Paulina, she's kind of anglicized, and you point out there's a few things that the person probably made up, the person probably wasn't in Haiti and just sort of took all this. But they wanted to center the story of this teenage daughter. And if you can say something about the family. And the other thing I wanted to ask you when I read this and when I'm teaching the story, it's hard to describe the family as what, what is this family? <laughs> so, I mean, I call them free people of color because I think that. So one of the things I talk about um, in Tropics of Haiti is like when we are using racial markers, what do we want them to do? Because a lot of times it, we sometimes think, well, how will I describe this person? But actually what we want to say with that is not what we mean. So for example, when we say like a mulatto general, well, what someone's trying to tell us sometimes is that person's on the side of France at that moment, or they're an adherent of such and such ideology. So I think 
that what we want to know for this family is that they are free people of color. So they're not enslaved themselves, which is really, really important um, because there is a huge gulf and difference between um, being an enslaved person and not being an enslaved person. And the life of Toussaint Louverture, for example, illustrates that he was, you know, enslaved at birth, but then later gets his emancipation and will lead a very different trajectory than someone like Desalines, who's enslaved, we think, up until the moment of the revolution itself. So that's the first thing. They're a free family of color. Um, so they, they also are capable of passing for white. Some of them. So, so what the mother does, and I believe in the story, if I'm remembering this correctly, she's actually has lighter skin than her daughters. So what she does is she um, dresses as a man, if I, and is like, you know, kind of carrying them along with her. So there's all this kind of subterfuge. And so again, instead of saying to me that someone is mulatto, what we really wanted to signify was that to a white person, this person might not signify as black. Well, you actually point out in the book, which mm -hmm. is kind of interesting because I just reread it more recently than you did, your own book. <laughs> <laughs> the mother disguises herself as a French soldier yes. because they are trying to get away from this town because she wants to save her teenage daughters from rape and exploitation. And then they run into a bunch of French soldiers. Quickly, she dresses like a French soldier. And then you point out in the story, we're never told that the mother is probably light-skinned and the daughter's possibly darker. And you say, it doesn't seem to matter to the narrator. But what you are pointing out, which I think is great, as a reader today, we kind of puzzle through this and say, oh, so she is like a French white soldier now disguised and says, these are my prisoners. These are local people of color. But we are shaping this narrative in a way from our perspective. And the story in 1828 let readers just say, oh, how complex. A mother trying to save her daughters. I get that part. Dressing up as a soldier, I hope she'll pass. If she doesn't pass, she'll be executed. So, so all this, what you're saying, what literature kind of opens up is what we have to do to make sense of this, but it makes a lot of sense in the story. Like the story is totally yes. coherent. Yes, yes. And, and in fact, there's a lot of cross-dressing for <laughs> lack of a better term, disguising oneself as the opposite gender because, um, and there's a lot of blackface. There's a lot of white people dressing in blackface to pretend like they're black. And so again, what do we, are we to say, okay, we need to suspend our disbelief. Like we understand these to be literary ruses, but then like when you, when you really step back and think about it, I'm like, am I to believe that this person blacked up their face with like shoe polish, encountered the black revolutionaries and then the black revolutionaries were like, oh yeah, you are black. Right. But, but what is it doing in the narrative? Because the idea is that it's, it is that easy, but then, okay. If, if it's that easy, then if you peel back that next layer, the entire artifice of race just crumbles away mm -hmm. that if somebody can just assume it by changing their clothes or because their skin is just like a little bit light and ambiguous or by putting on shoe polish that you would not just be fooled like on the stage of the blackface minstrelsy where you're suspending your disbelief consciously, but you would actually be like, really in mm -hmm. operating and treating this person and saving their life because you believe them to be one or the other race. And so even though what it tries to do to a certain extent is reify racial categories, it actually undermines them. Like they're just things that you can pick up and put off like performances. Cause there's a lot of, then the person starts speaking what the French call like um, pigeon quote unquote, like they start speaking and adopting these speech patterns that supposedly enslaved people had. And then 
all of a sudden, oh, they can perform it. And then the same, the opposite is true as well, that we see enslaved people or free people of color also doing this kind of passing. Victor Hugo's novel is, has a famous scene where they try to figure out if Citizen C is really a, a person who believes himself to free people of color, free person of color, or if he's been passing as white because the black revolutionaries want to find out. And if he's been passing as white, they're going to execute him. But if he has always maintained that he was a man of color, then they might save his life. I love this. We should send this to um, Andrew Sullivan, this kind of self-proclaimed pundit who believes that he said something idiotic a couple of weeks ago, like, oh, what everybody knows, like two people of one color cannot produce somebody. Of and you're like, you don't even want to go to the argument, but you think you could read one text from the 19th century, all of which have you've analyzed. And there are hundreds, you've discovered hundreds and hundreds of texts, not one, where this anxiety that a contemporary pundit in 2021 exhibits is exactly there. Yeah. Think it's your work doing this and your failure to imagine what humanity actually is. So to go back to Teresa, so Teresa is a teenage daughter and then she's supposed to be well-behaved, her mother's protecting her and instead she says, I overheard a military secret. I'm gonna go run away from my family, risk my life and do what? <laughs> She's going to go and inform Toussaint Louverture and the other revolutionaries about this military secret, which ends up being really, really important. It ends up in the way that the story is framed leading to Haitian independence. So right. here you have a woman. And again, this is not the first time. So there's another story, Zelika, the Creole, um, which is based on Leonora Sanse's secret history of the horrors of San Domingo, in which in Zelika, it's Toussaint Louverture's wife who gives crucial information to Henri Christophe, who later becomes king of Haiti, but is a revolutionary in that tale. Um, that ends up leading to Haitian independence. And so it uh, acknowledges the role of women, Teresa does, at a time in African-American culture in which women were not necessarily at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. And so there are all these articles in Freedom's Journal talking about the role of women, some saying, well, women need to be at home supporting their men, and some saying, no, you need to basically listen to us. And there are a lot of just... S, like Teresa Hachentel signed with just S. There's a lot of just initials in some of these arguments and explicit ones that I talk about that say, you know, women are a huge part of history and their role needs to be acknowledged because some of the male abolitionists had a tendency to focus on what they viewed as the betrayal of women to the cause of abolition. So in David Walker's writing, sometimes he would say, well, don't let the women know because if they're sleeping with the planter or something like that, then they might like divulge your secrets. Cause this was a huge stereotype during the Haitian revolution as well, that enslaved women who were having quote unquote relations with their masters would give away secrets or that the free women of color or courtesan courtesans, women of color who were courtesans would betray the cause of the revolution. And so this is another trope that was constantly used during the revolution to kind of defame women. And so what I'm sort of suggesting is that actually alongside that, first of all, the one way to read that is these women are being defiant and revolutionary. So we read against the grain. And then if we read along the grain as well, we see, or, or rather, so one way is along the grain and the other way is against the grain. We can see that actually there's all these narratives of women doing things like defying their masters or and defying the male revolutionaries too if they are the ones who are were trying to um betray the cause and that a lot of these were born out of supposedly true narrative accounts um and then the fiction writers kind of took them up and you this story is going to feature in your anthology that you're publishing right so you're assembling all these texts and about the haitian revolution partly to demonstrate how much people 
grappled with it, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, I think the, the, the famous authors have been written about a lot. The fa- like the Lamartines, the Hugos, the Kleists, um, even Sanse, like they're, they've generated a ton of- you talk about Melville, Benito Sereno, which is kind of modeled on a different kind of slavery, yes. but ultimately refers back and has these semi-fake legal documents, really one of those texts here. Yes, so, so there are certain texts that kind of got taken up over and over again, but I also think that in some of these other texts, which are not as well written, I mean, there's like, there's like, you know, tons of British authors from Ireland, Scotland as well, along with Austria. I mean, there's like, there's people from all over the world in this volume. And, um, and, and what would happen if we had just kind of a different perspective on who was interested in the Haitian Revolution? People ask me all the time, well, why was Germany so interested in the Haitian Revolution? I'm like, oh, well, we have to think about, you know, like the Napoleonic Wars. We have to think about all of the things that are engulfing Europe. And yeah, they're captivating. This is captivating the attention of the world. And so what's happening on this seemingly small place actually takes takes this outsized importance across Europe. Um, and so the anthology will have the Zelikas, the Creole, the excerpts. And then some of them, you know, Zelika, the Creole, I believe is three volumes. Harriet Martino's The Hour and the Man is like three volumes. It's like, you can't, te- these are important texts, but you can't really teach them in that way because they're too long. And right. so part of the wish with the anthology was to say, what if you took like a snippet then of course a student or a graduate student or researcher wants to go fuller in depth they'll read the whole thing and then some like Lamartine's Toussaint Louverture wasn't translated has never been translated into English which kind of astonishes me even it's in rhyming couplets so that's hard it's this play it's written in rhyming couplets it's poetic um and so just getting a big chunk of it there and just saying let's see what Lamartine's portrayal was. And then the other part of it is a ton of Haitian authors. So there was this feeling that Haitian authors didn't really take up the cause of writing about the revolution until the 20th century. And that wasn't really true. We knew of these other cases, but when I put them all together, um, you see that there's tons of poetry, that there are short stories. The first play authored by a Haitian author on the Haitian revolution was in 1804 by Pierre Flignot, it's called Laïcien Expatrié, the expatriated Haitian. Like they didn't wait. They, right. they, it was immediate, you know. And I think what's great about this project is it does several things. And I think over the last 50 years, we've seen so much revisionary, really productive scholarship. And then the, the, some key texts are including Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark, which you referenced, where she says the, what she called kind of, Africanized figures in American fiction serve a real purpose to actually stabilize a kind of white fantasy about itself. Edward Said, who kind of combs through with many of his students through literature. So there's, there are black people in English literature. There's, you know, not only in Jane Eyre or sort of the mad woman in the attic, but there's a lot of presence, but you're, you're showing something else. You're saying, no, people produced literary works about their own experience. And it wasn't in the corners of a book, a hidden figure you have to kind of sort of trace and track, but actually say it was a vibrant discussion. Mm-hmm. And then sort of I want to conclude, you, you sort of, you have this really interesting discussion about Teresa. So you say there's the, the woman who really has to be credited, Frances Smith Foster, who really did a lot of work to really bring the story to people's attention. She said, I have a hard time calling this a feminist text. And you say, I actually kind of would go close to calling it a feminist text. And I think if it's about a 17 year old woman who changes the course of history, brings Toussaint Louverture at great risk to herself and disobeys her mother. Like what is not feminist about it? 
And she also says like, oh, I could go and like get married or be like, you know, concerned with my, like of my, lo my love life, but I'm not, like I'm much more concerned. So there is a nationalist narrative there as well, but there is also a no, actually, like I don't. And this is what I meant when you look at the pages of Freedom's Journal and you see this like domestic argument that a lot of the male authors are making, like, oh, domesticity, be the faithful and dutiful black woman, right? And here we have a tale where the character is a young girl and is not interested in this. Her mother is also dressing as a man, defying like soldiers' orders, pretending that she's a soldier, picking up identities and discarding them. And again, showing the poverty in terms of thinking that identity is stable in the first place, but also that, um, that, that these women have agency that they are willing to use. They're not people who solely need protection. And even though, you know, Teresa is imperiled, like she knows that what she's doing is very, very dangerous because she knows that if she's recognized as a woman, like this puts her in all kinds of danger, but it also allows the author to make all this social commentary because why should that be extraordinary what she's doing when, when in, in, why can't she then be recognized instead as being a part of the revolution right. instead right. of, but, but in, instead, because women were largely pushed out from this realm, um, anytime they did anything, there's like all this judgment attached to it. And so to me, it reads as feminist because it's asking us to pay attention also to a large extent to our own, um, to our own judgments about kind of right. what she's, doing because I mean and we're still find the standard lines in there about mothers and their daughters and virtue I mean you still find all these 19th century elements in there it's just that with Teresa she's kind of like well I have a duty and a cause that's higher I mean you still find all the religion all that stuff is still in there the reflection of the era um it's and so I say proto-feminist if anything but I think it's I think it's actually quite remarkable and especially yeah. and part of my point there was also when you put it in the realm next to the other texts of the era, then it's really radical. Right. The other literary texts in the, in the history of the revolution. Yeah, can I just ask you in conclusion, like how did you get interested in this whole topic? You know, what's funny is that when I went to graduate school, I actually wanted to work on New Orleans literature, French literature from New Orleans. Okay. And then I started to come across all these Haitian authors because there was there were people like Victor Sejour and things who had ties to Haiti or Saint-Domingue. Um, and then I was interested in Alexandre Dumas and all of this sort of just led me to, because Victor Sejour's story, I should mention, published in Revue des Colonies, but with in an issue where Haitian authors had published their short stories also, like Ignace Snow and others. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, let, let, let me take a look at this. And again, was one of those things where the, even though I'm Haitian, I knew Haitian authors like Edwish Danticat, like contemporary Haitian right. authors, but I was not aware of the vastness of 19th century Haitian literature, including poetry and plays and novels. And so once I started reading it, I just could not believe one that I didn't know about this. And yeah. then two, that it wasn't more studied, that there weren't more studies of it. Just the, the key authors like Émeric Bergeau, who I talk about in Tropics of Haiti, was, was written about. And um, one of my colleagues here at the University of Virginia, Anna Brickhouse, had written about Pierre Faubert and his play, Auger ou le préjugé de couleur, Auger or Color Prejudice, but that the taken as a whole, and it's taken as a whole by kind of Anglophone scholars, people outside of Haiti, that it was almost like no one was interested. And that was fascinating to me, even on its own. Like, why would we not be interested? Like, we're interested in the Haitian Revolution, but we're not interested in like what the free, what the people of Haiti produced. Like, so there was incongruity there to me that I wanted to just explore.
No, it's so great, Marlene, and with the work you're doing. I mean, it's, a, you know, as you know, Ada Ferreira is a colleague of mine here who's really shifted, I think, the kind oh, yes. of historical awareness of the Haitian Revolution to Bella Fischer. Uh, one of my former students, Gabrielle Seville, who is a poet, who is also, you know, shares this background. But I think what you're showing is that we don't have to be so desperately looking at, oh, the history, there's no history, these people are silent. You're saying, actually, not at all. There's a huge, vibrant discourse that takes a lot to get through and sort of make sense of. And, and I think the most, and the wonderful thing about this conversation, you keep on saying our contemporary conceptions are both not adequate, but also shaped by some of these things. And if we go back to these texts, we can actually, uh, we have a moment to rethink our own conceptions in a really creative way. I think that's actually what's hilarious. Like it's more creative in 1828 sometimes than today's debate. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that we, just as you mentioned, you know, we say, why isn't there like a major blockbuster film on the Haitian revolution? Oh, it would be so hard to write a script. And I'm always like, no, it wouldn't because we have such great material from right. what was published before that either one of the older stories could be adapted and made into a film, right. or that could be seen as the basis in its Like we don't actually need to reinvent the wheel. And in fact, it might be harder for us because we could just listen to the right. works that were already and read the works that were already published and understand how popular they were that people went to go see during the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes right. plays on stage and CLR James, et cetera, Derek Walcott, all of that. So our um, listeners, I just want to point them to sort of at, on Twitter, it's at Fictions of Haiti, which they should follow because you learn an enormous amount by all your posts. And I love your kind of vibrant sort of participation in should friends commemorate this or not? Like, it's great. No, it's really great. And it allows us also to see our own debates in America in a different kind of from a different angle. So I think that's really important. And your book, um, Tropics of Haiti, people should look up. And then the anthology is coming out with the University of Virginia this this fall. So I want to thank about thank thank you for being on the Think About It podcast. I'm at Uli Bear on Twitter. Think about it is also on Twitter, of course, for people to can find out about new episodes. And um, you know, I would love to have you on again about another of the texts. And when the anthology comes out, maybe we can yes. just, you know, sort of celebrate that publication. That would be great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, and um, have a. So I guess today is a commemorative day to celebrate. I guess the law to recognize the crime of slavery in France. So let's acknowledge that. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. -bye.